Welcome to the Military Birth Talk podcast, presented by the Military Birth Resource Network and Postpartum Coalition. I'm Annie Denzel, and among other things, I'm also a mom and a military spouse. We believe that birth stories are a powerful tool to prepare for birth and all that follows, especially when those stories all have one important thing in common, life in the military. Join me each week for a new story, and we hope you'll find community, resources, and specialized support from members of the military community who are navigating this sacred, challenging, and empowering time of life. In today's episode, we'll be hearing from Rebecca, who was active duty in the Air Force when she gave birth to her two sons. Her first was born at a military treatment facility via cesarean after two days of labor. During her second pregnancy, Rebecca and her husband learned that their child had Down syndrome, and she discusses the experience of navigating her and her child's health care through the diagnosis, while also executing PCS orders. She discusses the choices they had around birth location due to his diagnosis, the support that was and was not available to them after the birth, and the way that being a dual military family impacted the choices they made for his care. Rebecca now works as Associate Director for the nonprofit Exceptional Families of the Military, and she sheds light on some of the important nuances of the EFMP program that so many families in the military depend on for services. Here's my conversation with Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me on Military Birth Talk today. Hi, thanks for having me. So we'll get started today by having you share your birth stories. Um, But before we dive in, can you take a few moments to share a bit about yourself with our listeners? Yes, my name is Rebecca Emerson. I am 45 years old. I am a former dual military. I was in the Air Force and my husband is still active duty Army. We have two kids, Lincoln and Winston. My youngest, Winston, was born with Down syndrome. Uh, We did have both of our kids while we were dual military. And currently I work uh, for Exceptional Families in the Military, EFM. We help disability connected military families. And that is how I'm connected to the Military Birth Resource Network and Postpartum Coalition. Thank you. Okay, great. Um, So we will get started here um, as usual by having you share your birth stories. And as you walk us through your stories, I will mostly just be listening along with everyone else. So you can feel free to sort of drive the narrative, you know, in in whatever way is um, real for you. I'm not going to be hopping in and asking too many questions. Um, And then we'll use the second part of our conversation for some follow-up and discussion and more of a Q&A style discussion. So um, I'm looking forward to hearing your experience and you can feel free to dive in wherever along your journey you'd like to start. I'll start in the beginning very briefly with my first birth, uh, Lincoln, and this was in 2000. Seven or 2016. I don't know what year I was in. <laughs> 2016 is confusing <laughs> because I went into labor in 2015 and I didn't have a child until 2016. So it really covers both years. <laughs> but <laughs> a two a two year labor that's quite something. Yes. <laughs> um. Yes. Absolutely. So 
it was very stressful for me being on active duty at the time. Um, we had just PCS and just started new jobs. I actually didn't inform my leadership until I could no longer fit into my uniform anymore. And I had to go to the um, maternity uniform, which was about five or six months, um, just because I was worried about the whole thing, scheduling, having the child, um, and just fears in general. Um, talking about fears, I had a lot of fears with my first pregnancy. I was 37 at the time. I had a lot of fears about um, the testing coming back with something wrong. And I remember asking my medical friend about it. And really, I had a heart to heart at that point with my first child before he was even born <laughs> about what I would do or what would happen if some of those tests came back positive or there was something uh, some sort of diagnosis um, that I'd be facing. So I kind of had a preemptive thought about it um, with my first child before I even had my second child. I was, we were stationed in Colorado Springs at the time, and I did this thing called centering appointments, where it's kind of, you do group appointments. Um, to me, it was very hippie, dippy, but I I loved it. I leaned in. <laughs> And I really enjoyed getting to know people who were also pregnant at the same time as me. And um, anyways, I came up with a birth plan and I was, I'm very detail oriented and I just knew everything was going to go exactly how I wanted it to go, <laughs> which is so ridiculous. Looking back now, um, I had a whole piece of paper with everything typed up anyways, <laughs> I um, ended up being induced at Fort Carson, and um, this has been talked about many times during the podcast, and I do wish this podcast was available then because I didn't really think about it. You know, induction was recommended to me, and I just said, okay, I did feel strongly that I didn't want to have an epidural, not because I wanted an unmedicated birth, but because I have a fear of not moving my legs. <laughs> so because of that fear, I didn't want uh, the epidural, which is very different from, I think, a lot of people's thoughts on it. But I went into labor. Um, you know, I got induced. I remember my first contractions, um, feeling like I had to go to the bathroom. And I remember that feeling. And we ended up going into the hospital um, I labored for a really long time and I don't remember a whole lot of it. It was very stressful for me. They did give me Pitocin and, um, you know, uh, it was just very, very painful and long. And I went in on New Year's Eve and I gave, ended up having Lincoln on uh, January 2nd. Wow. <laughs> so I was just there forever. I, I, I labored for a long time and then I did go into active labor. Again, I did not have the epidural. And when I was in active labor, everybody rushed into the room and his heartbeat, it's hard for me to even talk about right now, but it was, it was traumatic at the time because everybody rushed in the hospital. I knew it was something was wrong. And they're like, we're going to have to do an emergency C-section and your child's heartbeat, he's struggling. And I said, okay. So then I had to sit still between contractions <laughs> and 
get an epidural anyway. Oh, oh my gosh. After all that time on Pitocin. I was sweating and oh, it was horrible. I felt terrible. And um, I, God bless the um, anesthesiologist because he was, he did something for me that I didn't realize at the time, which was um, after they did the emergency C-section, they took Lincoln away immediately. And my husband had what I refer to as his guts moment when he saw all my guts laying out on the table. But he was fine because he's a combat engineer in the army. But he said it was really strange to see to see that. And uh, they rushed him away because he still had some fluid in his lungs and we're at altitude and everything. Um, and they got that out. And anyways, um, the anesthesiologist said, do you want do you want me to put you under while they sew you back up? And I thought, no way. You know, I said, no, no. And then they started putting me back together or whatever, and I could feel the pressure and the tugging and I could smell my flesh burning. And I felt like I was going to throw up, (laughs) pass out. And uh, I said, yes, put me under. And he did. And then I woke up 20 minutes later or however long later and was refreshed (laughs) and could see my baby. And I felt, um, I don't know, I just felt better. And I didn't realize that's not a normal thing for them to do or to ask. And it was kind of extended patient care. So I was very happy about that. And um, anyway, so yeah, I, you know, that was the first birth, you know, it was a C-section. I didn't, I was really against having a C-section, but obviously I'm going to do whatever I can to you know, make sure that my baby is healthy. And uh, before I went back to work, I was on maternity leave, which was at the time of six weeks, but it changed to 12 weeks while I was on maternity leave. Hmm. (laughs) And so I jumped through all these hoops to get that paperwork done. And it was really confusing at the hospital because I was in an army hospital, I was active duty air force and the paperwork and the systems don't talk to each other. So I just had to do a lot of jumping through hoops while I had a newborn to try to get the paperwork right, just so I could take the six weeks of maternity leave. And then again, the 12 weeks of maternity leave. Oh, yeah, they they don't make it easy. No, it was. Yeah. And it was, you know, I didn't realize I didn't think about it then. But I think about it now, how it would be nice to have you know, an option to go downtown and things like that. Uh, you know, I was just told, Hey, I was in the military and I like, you will give birth here. And I was just like, yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Didn't even think about having the choice of my civilian uh, counterparts, you know, civilian spouses. Yeah. So I didn't have any issues breastfeeding and it went pretty smoothly after that. Lincoln did have a tongue tie, but it didn't really impact his uh, nursing. And so I did get his tongue tie fixed uh, or cut, and they didn't give me any pushback on that, which I hear is also kind of unusual. So thank you, Fort Carson, for doing that. <laughs> and uh, thank you to that anesthesiologist. Um, so I'll fast forward to my second birth, which was in 2017. and. Um, I got pregnant while I was nursing and, um, 
bit of a shock. I wouldn't say it was unplanned, but uh, I did, you know, get pregnant without having a period. So it was um, not what I was expecting. Again, I was pregnant and about to PCS (laughs) from um, Colorado to uh, North Carolina to Fort Liberty. So I got pregnant and we're planning our move and everything. And I'm already in like high risk care because I'm geriatric pregnancy. Because at this point I was 38 going to give birth at age 39. And I was already, you know, receiving a higher level of care, I would say, at Fort Carson. Um, But I do remember I took a quad test, which is a probability test. And it is a, I don't like this test at all. I'm just going to put it out there. If a lot of people contact me and they say, I got a positive quad test. No, you didn't. That's not what it, that test is telling you, you have a one in 10 chance of this happening or a one in 300 chance of this happening. Uh, What you really need is a more specific blood test. (laughs) Um, called an NIPT test. And um, that gives you, it's not diagnostic. I, I have to caveat, it's not diagnostic um, yet, but it's like 99% accuracy. So the only way to get 100% is if you do an amniocentesis. Anyways, I got the quad test back and the nurse said it was concerning. And I honestly didn't even think about it because I knew it was, a, I was just like, oh, okay. It's a, you know, They're saying I have a higher chance of having a kid with a chromosomal disorder. Okay. (laughs) I already already have a higher chance um, anyway, so I didn't think too much of it. And then later on during the road, right when we were getting ready to um, PCS, uh, I got a NIPT test done and that came back positive. And I was so upset. Um, My husband was a very, very calm presence in my life during that time. And he really dealt with it way better than I did. (laughs) I went through a couple weeks of being just like really, really angry. And it started off like in the very beginning because I got really angry at the, um, so the doctor delivering the news (laughs) when she delivered it to me, she said, well, you know, this is positive, but you can, you know, in the state of Colorado, you can have a termination, a late termination, and um, but Tricare won't pay for that, so you're gonna have to pay out of pocket. And that was her way of delivering it to me, and I just got really, really mad. Like, you know, you're not telling me all the options here, and that's when my advocacy was born <laughs> because. I believe that you should be told multiple options. And I feel like some people are pushed towards termination and some people are pushed towards having their child. Some people are given outdated information on the diagnosis. So that was really upsetting. But I'm, you know, older and more set in my ways, I guess you would say. And I said, I, you're not going to be my doctor anymore. I need to find someone else. <laughs> and she said, okay. And I got someone else and 
she was much better. And I was already in MFM at the time, um, the higher level care. So I just got another doctor. So, you know, I'm processing this diagnosis. It was very difficult. Um, I wasn't even thinking about the impacts it would have on our careers in the military or anything like that. I was focused on, is my child going to live? Because I was Googling all this stuff. <laughs> the Google is the worst thing to do. Like I was Googling this stuff and it's like 50% chance of your child living. And I was just very, very upset, but I was still angry about the diagnosis. I feel I should, you know, it's fair to say that I was still angry. <clears throat> and, uh, then, you know, fast forward to, uh, I'm packing up. We are packed out. My husband's already gone because he has to do some TDYs before his next job. I had talked to my branch and they had given me a job outside of my career field at Fort Liberty, which I was very, very grateful for, uh, not on my career path or anything, but it's so we could stay together. And I had a really big a senior leader advocate that really helped me during this time. And so there is like really good leadership out there. And I'm so grateful that they PCS me to Fort Liberty with my husband. I don't know how I would have dealt with it otherwise. Um, but so imagine this, like house is packed up, husband's been gone, right? I, I packed out everything myself. Um, I have a baby, <laughs> you know, still an infant under a year old. I flew my mom out to help and uh, she doesn't drive though in an uh, unfamiliar place. And uh, I go into my MFM appointment and they tell me, we're going to have to put you in the hospital today. And I was like, what? This is my last appointment. Like I am going to start driving cross country tomorrow. And uh, she said, well, no, you're not. You have to be admitted to the hospital because uh, there is a problem. And that, you know, they don't tell you all the specifics at first. And I find this very frustrating, but I know they have to have like the right doctor in there or whatever. And um, they told me I had what's called absent flow which I found out later that a lot of people who are carrying a child with Down syndrome have placenta problems hmm. and this type of problem. And I'm not a doctor. <laughs> so this is a very unscientific way to describe it, but it's when it starts and stops the flow of your umbilical cord. So basically your child is being deprived oxygen and nutrients and things for short periods of time. And, uh, I got wheeled into the hospital and luckily it was right next to the MFM place in Colorado. <laughs> so I didn't have to go very far. My mom's freaking out because it's uh, Lincoln's last day in daycare because I had already given up his CDC slot <laughs> and she doesn't drive. <laughs> and all these things are going through my head. I can't contact my husband because he was. I can't remember now, but I couldn't get a hold of him that day. Like it was something was going on. He was on a plane or something. I didn't get a hold of him until later. And they wheeled me over. I got admitted. They said, your baby might have to be born today if we can't fix this. And I immediately started getting scared because Colorado is a state 
as the first doctor mentioned, um, that, you know, you can terminate essentially up until birth if there is something, your, your child has some sort of diagnosis and Down syndrome is included in there. And I was afraid the doctors weren't going to care about his life if he was born excessively premature. Mm-hmm. So I didn't expect to get so emotional, but I was so worried about it. And um, so in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to lie to them about <laughs> like how old he is in utero. These are the, kind of the crazy thoughts that were going through my mind, which of course that, they have all my information. They know how old he is. I just was thinking maybe I can just escape to another state if they're not going to support me. And I don't know. It was completely irrational thinking. And I called my sister-in-law, who's a nurse, and she had a premature baby. She told me, you know, you're going to have to stay there if they tell you. I said, yeah, I know. I know. She's like, you might have to give birth today. I said, yeah, I know. But the reality just wasn't sinking in. I kept thinking about my work and I didn't sign my laptop back in yet. (laughs) It's like stupid things like that that I was thinking about. And um, they gave me a steroid shot and um, they said, hey, this is going to prepare your baby's lungs for birth. And it also may fix this absent flow problem. It's about a 50-50 shot and it fixed it. <laughs> it fixed it. That's great. So yeah, it was, I was, I couldn't believe it. But then they told me, they're like, look, if we let you go from the hospital, you have to be monitored every day. And of course this was very, very crazy to me. Cause I'm like, well, that's not really possible because I'm in the middle of a PCS again. I am like focused on the wrong thing here. I'm like, I have the PCS. I have to report to my next duty station. And, (laughs) you know, my house is packed up. It's a rental and there's people moving in in a few days. And these are the things that I was thinking about when they told me that. And uh, long story short, I made it happen, which wasn't easy. It was very, very stressful. Um, Instead of driving, I abandoned my car there. (laughs) And, uh, I uh, decided to uh, fly so I could immediately be monitored at my parents' house, and which luckily is in South Carolina. My dad is retired Coast Guard and retired in Charleston, which is about four hours from Fort Liberty. And so um, I called TRICARE on the phone. I got everybody on the same page. Again, I was doing case management for myself. I was working with the case manager at Fort Carson. Fort Liberty knew I was coming. I touched base with that case manager. I called MUSC, which is the hospital I was going to be at in Charleston. And um, I managed to, you know, get all my records and everything. And fly to Charleston, get seen that day that I flew in and then was seen every day until my husband could finally make it or make it to Fort Liberty. I'm sorry. He's going to, or make it back to Fort Liberty from his TDY. And then I was going to meet him there. My parents were going to take me there and the, and my other baby Lincoln. So 
just a lot of logistics. I was grateful that I have the military kind of mindset to where I was just like, I'm going to make this happen. This is going to happen. I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> and um, I did. The MUSC doctors were great. And when I got to Fort Liberty, which um, at the time they told me that there was nine babies born a day at Fort Liberty. Um, it's a pretty, they have a small NICU there on base and it is very baby friendly. They have their own MFM. There's just a lot of babies being born there. <laughs> and when I got there, the MFM doctor, amazing. I told him my whole story, what was going on. And he gave me his personal cell phone number. Wow. Um, again, I haven't even signed into my unit yet. And he gave me his personal cell phone number. And he was there with me the whole way. I saw him later. I'll just divert this a little bit because I saw him later at a brewery with his family. <laughs> and I like thanked him in front of his family. It was like during like Thanksgiving time frame. They were like so proud of him. They were like, oh, oh my baby boy, you know. That's really nice. Because I was glad to see him again, you know, because I he went above and beyond and really made me part of the care team. Yeah. And uh, because he had to get doctors involved from Duke. And uh, basically, they talked about me and Winston a lot. So and I was part of that decision making team. So where was I going to give birth? I was constantly being monitored to check his heart. I had a, you know, a echocardiogram while he was in utero. He was majoring undersized. They were worried about my umbilical cord. There was all these issues going on. And uh, we decided as a team, um, this is after I found out he had no problems with his heart. So this is a big decision point in my, in my mind. I felt like Fort Liberty could handle him being born there. And because uh, all indications were pointing to he was going to be healthy. And uh, so I chose to give birth there. And if you had decided to, if you had decided to give birth at Duke, would that have been complicated from the TRICARE perspective? Or was that, did they have some kind of agreement that that was where high level care would occur? There is an agreement. So Okay. In my mind, it would not have been complicated at that point. Okay. Uh, Good. Okay. However, my experience since then with TRICARE says that there might have been some issues, but mm. <laughs> I think I could have figured it out. Yeah. Good. I'm, yeah, I'm glad that, that wasn't another um, lens that you had to uh, work through or, uh, you know, a mental sacrifice you had to make. Yeah. That's a good point. Mental sacrifice. I remember my mom and dad saying, you're so strong. And I thought, I'm not strong. I am dead inside. Like, I don't have any more emotions to expel. Mm -hmm. Like, I have to just do this, like, get through it. Yeah. But I did make whenever he, the absent clothing ended up working out, I made one of those deals with God. <laughs> I don't know if you believe in God or not, but I do. And I made a deal. I was like, if you just, if you just let him live, God, then I will, you know, make sure that he has the best life and I will never be angry for another second about this diagnosis. <laughs> and so I'm trying to keep up my part of that bargain by being a full-time advocate. 
So anyways, we made the decision to have the baby at Fort Liberty and have Winston there. And we scheduled a C-section. It was not advised that I give birth to him. They did go over all the options and um, they did not think that he would survive a vaginal birth. So I said, of course, I will just have another C-section. And this time it was actually better because I didn't labor before. Yeah. (laughs) I made an appointment and we agreed on the time to go in and uh, I went in and uh, my doctor was there and they knew that he was coming. So everybody was on alert because they knew that he has Down syndrome and there could possibly be unknown complications. So yeah, I went in and I had the C-section and uh, he came out and um, he was the most perfect little baby. He was actually measuring smaller than he was born at. So he was born at a pretty good weight. Um, His age, they think, was 35, 36 weeks. And um, yeah, so we were in the hospital. Initially, everything looked great. And um, one of the reasons why I chose Fort Liberty is because I knew I could stay there as a ward and they had plenty of room for me where that would not have been the case at Duke. Hmm. And I was worried if he did have to stay in the hospital, that um, I would have to be in a hotel. Right. And that would be very upsetting to me. I would want to be closer to him. Yeah. He did end up being in the hospital for about 10 days. And I was grateful for the ward status at that time because my husband was uh, taking command and in the army, (laughs) this just blows my mind because I'm Air Force. In the army, you have to sign for every piece of equipment that's in your unit. So that's what was happening while I was in the hospital and Winston was in the PICU is he had to like sign for all this equipment and do all this stuff. But at least he could jump over to the hospital very quickly mm-hmm. on Liberty. So to me, I needed that emotional support. The medical support was there. He was in there for longer because he was, uh, he had cold baby syndrome, which his, he had a hard time regulating his temperature and he uh, was a little bit jaundiced and he almost had a failure to thrive, uh, but he didn't. So, which brings me to my next point about my birth experience there with lactation support. And this is the one thing that I will criticize. Uh, the lactation consultant was uh, not good and um, was kind of baby blaming Winston. I don't think she had any experience with special needs or anything like that. Um, but I just didn't need her, her attitude about it. Um, honestly. And, uh, I had to pump. So I started pumping and, um, he wouldn't take a bottle at first and we had to work really hard at it and he would tire himself out and expend a lot of calories, tiring himself out, trying to suck. And it was just kind of a vicious cycle that um, eventually did get better. Otherwise, we would have been there longer and it would have been a lot more serious. But he did end up drinking um, from the bottle. But I had to feed him every hour. And uh, 
also pump every two hours. Oh, that's so hard. It was very, very stressful. And I already disliked pumping because, you know, I was active duty. I had to pump, you know, when I went back to work and I'm not a fan, uh, not a fan at all, which, you know, brings me to, I'll just talk about it now. So it was very, the lactation support that I got when I left the hospital was really good. I actually had a Navy reserve nurse. That was my lactation consultant that came to my house and her and I clicked. I love her. She was so amazing. And we just got along really good. She was on board with my goals. Looking back, I would not have done it though. I would have gone to formula, but in my kind of postpartum, like upset mind, I could control the, I could control breast milk. Mm-hmm. And if I could just give Winston breast milk, then he could be healthier and, you know, get a better shot. But it was very time consuming on me. And I never got him to take a full feeding. But with her help, I did get him to latch and take one to two ounces of feeding. So my cycle then ended up being, and this is why I wouldn't do it again, because my cycle ended up being I would breastfeed him, pump the rest, bottle it. And then repeat in an hour and a half. Mm. So I had to do that for, you know, months. And uh, it was very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, That's basically your entire day. Yeah. (laughs) It's my entire day. Um, But when I was in the hospital, like I said, I didn't really like the lactation support. It was kind of confusing from a paperwork standpoint, again, to get the medical grade pump that I needed for my house. Um, But I did muscle through that. Luckily, I had told everybody that he was going to be EFMP and uh, I knew it. Um, But this is the frustrating part uh, that I really want to talk about a little bit about EFMP because... Enrollment doesn't happen until after the child is born. So if you know something ahead of time and you're in a critical state of PCS, kind of like I was, what if you're PCSing to a remote location? Like there's no real mechanism in place to protect you and to get you to a place where you need medical care. If you're civilian and you're high risk pregnancy, or if you're military, you know, there just isn't any formal way of doing that. You have to rely on your leadership or your assignments people, which can be spotty. And I have seen it since I've been doing advocacy work where people have prenatal diagnoses and are not supported by their leadership. Their leadership doesn't care, you know, and they're in the middle of a PCS and maybe they're going somewhere. And I have seen loss of life from that. So it is very you know, I knew I was going to Liberty. I knew Duke was there. I knew UNC was there, like two places that can handle pretty much anything, to be quite honest. So I was lucky in that sense that I was supported, but not everybody is. And that's why I think that you should be able to do an enrollment into EFMP if you have a prenatal diagnosis, especially if it's at a critical time. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, it's just, The also when I, the nurse, again, this nurse was wonderful. Like she, when I was in the hospital and I met with like the EFMP nurse that like process starts your paperwork and stuff. She's like, well, I'm just going to go ahead and enroll you guys in ECHO. And I didn't know what that meant. I had no idea what she was even talking about. And other people I've met 
have been told not to enroll and it's uh, TRICARE ECHO is an extra insurance and it's for people who have certain, you know, diagnoses and yeah, you don't exactly know. You might not know that you need it when your child is one day old, (laughs) but if you already have a diagnosis and you know that there's complications with that, you absolutely should be enrolled because the time to enroll in that is not when you're in a crisis moment and you're facing a equipment item that you need for your baby that's $10,000 that isn't covered under the normal TRICARE policy. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's really important. Yeah. Bless her um, for just automatically doing it and recognizing that need. I know I didn't talk a lot about my, like my time in the hospital, I guess, but you know, I don't remember a whole lot from the actual birthing, I guess you would say, other than the things that I mentioned. And maybe it's just the way my brain processes trauma. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This blocks some of those things out. Uh, But it was, you know, the second time I had the paperwork figured out, I knew that I could give birth in an army hospital. This is my second army hospital. And I knew what to do for the air force paperwork. And, um, what I didn't, what frustrated me though, was these people did come and see me in the hospital and they told me about the resources. And this is because I gave birth on base. They told me about EFMP, which of course I already knew that about it. They told me about all these resources and I I heard about all these things and I was like, wow, that's great. I can do this, this, and this, but most of those resources are only available to civilian spouses, Hmm. people who do not have a full-time job. And I didn't find that out until later that these resources were geared towards an antiquated family dynamic that in my opinion does not exist in the military anymore. (laughs) Yeah. So not that civilian spouses don't work a lot of them work, uh, but it's like programs that are like, oh, you can have this respite care, but you're not allowed to work and have it. Right. That makes no sense to me. Um, <laughs> you can have therapists for your child come into your home through this military program, but they can't come into the daycare on days. You know, things like that that just did not make any sense. So. I was thinking that I would have a lot of support and I did not have a lot of support or a better way to say it would be the resources were not accessible to me. So I ended up having to get out of the military. Um, I was prior enlisted and had enough time to retire, but I had a commitment, a service commitment, which means like I had some years that I needed to fulfill. And that was because I transferred the GI bill Mm. and, uh, to my child, uh, I should have transferred it to my husband. I was told a long time ago that you couldn't transfer it to your active duty spouse, but you can, and you should, if you want to have your <laughs> clock start ticking. And I should have looked it up myself and I didn't. Um, but anyways, uh, I had to request secretary of the air force approval on a hardship to get out of that commitment and to retire because I couldn't do it. And I I don't want to sound like there are people out there who are doing it, who have special needs children, who are thriving, 
um, we do not have a good family support system. And uh, I threw money at it. I paid for a specialized daycare that was very, very expensive. I did get a subsidy for it, but it was still a lot of money. I paid um, out of pocket for three different babysitters. I was trying to hire an au pair on top of having full-time childcare um, because full-time childcare, as we all know, well, it just doesn't cover the hours you need. And it also, if your child's sick, what are you going to do? And we were dual military. So all of those challenges I didn't see coming exactly. And um, I did end up having to retire earlier than I thought. But I don't regret it at all, and um, I am very happy with my life, and I'm very happy doing advocacy work. I'm very happy with my children, and I love talking about it in forums like this, uh, where I can perhaps help other people you know, know about that there's other people going through these types of things. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. So much of what you said is the first that I've ever learned of some of those um, nuances. So I'm sure that the same will go for many of our listeners who may be in similar positions or just, you know, needing to support friends or colleagues who are going through something similar. So I'm really appreciative that you shared all of that. And I'd love to segue now into asking you a little bit about the work that you're doing with exceptional family members of the military and would love to know how you came to be involved and what resources the organization offers. Yes. So this is my passion. I came to be involved because I saw Austin Carrig, the founder, testify before Congress about EFMP. And uh, that was in 2020, right around when all this was happening. And uh, we offer support groups. So there are um, about 7,000 people in our largest support group. And if you're enrolled in EFMP in any branch of service, you can join. Uh, so that's a resource. We also do one-on-one assistance. So if you need help with getting assigned someplace that uh, you know fits your medical care needs, like a humanitarian assignment or a compassionate reassignment, we can help you with that. We also do advocacy. So, you know, one of the, one of our advocacy points uh, this this year, um, last year as well, um, was to make it so you could get added into EFMP um, with a prenatal diagnosis. And I will drop a petition that we have that you can sign if you think that's a, something you'd be interested in doing um, into the notes. And uh also, I'd like to mention, I am also involved in uh, Down Syndrome Diagnosis Network, and I have talked to, uh, I gave a, one of my early advocacy things I did was I talked to a bunch of OBs that were in residence at Fort Liberty about um, diagnosis delivery and having all the resources for um, Down Syndrome specifically, and that is current information on Down Syndrome, what your support looks like having your child, um, what your support might look like if you want to adopt your child out, or um, what your support might look like if you choose termination. So I think there should be a balanced uh, information given to people facing that diagnosis. And I also moderate the 
military group for Down syndrome diagnosis network as well, because I'm just very passionate about that. Uh, um, specifically because of, you know, our, my personal experience. Mm -hmm. So I know that you're, um, no longer in the military, but looking back on your experience since your first pregnancy, what sort of progress have you seen happen in the military birth world, um, that's been supportive for families and where do you think improvement might still need to be made as far as supporting families, um, giving birth, becoming parents, um, and especially, um, for those with special needs children. Yeah. So from an active duty standpoint, there's a lot more breastfeeding support now and the maternity and the paternity leave are great for anybody that's special needs, not special needs. Like you need that time. And I'll give a shout out to the women's initiative team, <laughs> the air force on that. A lot of things I used to be a part of that team. And, um, also being able to ship your breast milk when you're TDY, some huge wins there. Um, EFMP, you know, I'd like to see a lot more improvement there, um, for supporting families. There has been some improvements and there is a new DOD, um, instruction that came out, uh, this summer that they're going to standardize and try to make things more equitable amongst the services, which I think is great. Um, however, I'm just wary of you know, the time it takes to implement some of these things. And I've seen, you know, there, there's a law that has changed or language that's changed in the NDAA, for example, to increase respite hours through TRICARE. And uh, that was in 2021 NDAA, I think. And what year are we in now? And they still haven't <laughs> made that update. So I'm just, I would like to see more progress being made towards uh, the timeliness. And I would also like to see more people being reached out to for their personal experience to give back or to give feedback to the decision makers on these. There isn't a lot of room for that. And uh, that's what I would like to see for EFMP. Hmm. I'm curious to know what you might recommend for someone listening to you who's energized hearing about the advocacy work that you're doing, and maybe they have their own thing that they want to advocate for. Like, what's a good entry point for somebody who's never done any kind of advocacy work, but they have an issue that they really care about? What's what's like this kind of a first step for somebody that might want to become involved um, in advocacy around birth in the military? That's a great question. I would start off with like your, you know, what do you feel the most passionate about? and um, do you want to work, try to think, do you want to, you know, work locally or nationally? I think it's important to kind of ask yourself that question um, because there's great work to be done in both, right? Like I could go to my local Down syndrome, um, you know, group and say, hey, I want to be the military POC. I want to help. I want to be a warm handoff for every single military family that reaches out to you guys that gets a Down syndrome diagnosis, you know? So just reaching out to those organizations and saying you want to help um, and then you learn more. If you were more interested in the national, like trying to change policy and things like that, that's where you have to go to some of the bigger organizations, you know, like within the birth network. But usually, you know, if you find somebody online on LinkedIn or they email me and they ask me, 
hey, I'm interested in advocating for EFMP families, like I'll immediately start talking to them about it. And maybe I'm not the right person. Like maybe they are more focused on fertility issues. Well, I know somebody because I've been at an advocacy for a long time now, three years, that really focuses on that. And I will provide a warm handoff to that person so you can learn more about, you know, infertility issues um, and how you can advocate there. Yeah, that's great advice about looking for what kinds of organizations might have a gap around the military connection, because there are so many really great civilian um, initiatives and opportunities um, that would really benefit from having a military specific lens, but there's just, you know, sort of nobody to, to take those reins. So that's, um, that's a great piece of advice. Thanks for sharing that. Um, how did your relationship with the military evolve over the course of your experience when you look back at sort of where you are, where you were um, professionally before you had kids, and then what your mindset was um, when you became pregnant with your first and then moving through the diagnosis with your second? Um, was there any evolution there around your identity um, as a member of the military? Absolutely. I'm definitely more empathetic towards um, family issues, to be quite honest. I, I even, I thought about this really hard and I actually called somebody that I felt like I wasn't very empathetic to in the past um, because I didn't realize what it was like to have children. And uh, I, when I was getting ready to go on maternity leave, <laughs> my boss who has twins, he was dual military as well. His twins were like 16 at this time, but he, I told him, I was like, Hey, sir, I'm going to take my laptop with me. Cause in my mind, I couldn't imagine like being off for six weeks. And he just laughed in my face and he was <laughs> like, you will not be working. Do not take your laptop with you. And, um, I don't know. He just, he knew I was being silly and I was a little offended at the time. So <laughs> my <laughs> evolution has been definitely more empathy. Um, I did think things through for opportunities too. So there was an opportunity, this is after the birth of my first child, where I could have led a very important exercise in my career field. And my boss came to me about that opportunity. And however, it was going to be army, mostly army. And they, at the time I knew that my breast milk storage or anything, nothing would be supported. Pumping storage if I led this exercise. So I would have had to stop breastfeeding. And uh, I told him no. And he was fine with that. And, you know, he wanted to make sure that I knew that I was the number one pick for this. And I wanted to do it, but my priorities had shifted. And I didn't want to leave my infant for that long. And I also did not want to stop breastfeeding. And there's rules now about TDYs, post-birth and stuff like that. But I would say that that completely changed me. And um, I think it made me a better leader, honestly. With my second child, I would say um, my priorities, you know, having like a kind of a near-death experience in my mind with my child refocused my entire life. Like I was a contracting officer in the Air Force. And I always thought when I left, I would be working for industry and that I would be, you know, killing it in industry, just 
doing a good job and, you know, making a good salary. And uh, I have zero desire to do any of that anymore. <laughs> I just, I do advocacy and nonprofit work, which quite literally does not pay. And so <laughs> I, I'd say I refocus my life, honestly, and my priorities in the military. Um, I would like to see a way where there's more supports for people to continue serving, though. I would have liked to have served for another few years. I felt like it was a bit premature. However, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. The reality of the situation, I'll be honest with you, the reality of me taking a deployment, our family care plan would have failed point blank. So at that point, I know I can't, I can't serve because we can't, I can't deploy. And, uh, it really shifted my thinking about that too. Like thinking, do I want to deploy? The answer is no, <laughs> I don't want to be away from my child. <laughs> right. Which I don't think that I've had that thought before, you know? Right. Which is very hard because I served for a long time and I love the military and the military has done a lot of great things for me. Uh, I will say I complain about TRICARE a lot and I, I try to fix the gaps with TRICARE. However, comma, with Winston's, everything that went on with his birth, if I had not been, had that coverage, I would have been broke, beyond broke. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in debts, probably. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm making that up, but I know it would be really expensive because I saw the, <laughs> I saw the like, what it costs and what TRICARE pay those things that they send you. I haven't like added them all up, but I know it was a lot of money. Well, yeah, I, I'm also so happy to hear that your, um, that your boss at the time told you about the opportunity and gave you the, you know, the opportunity to lead this exercise and gave you the opportunity and the agency to turn it down instead of making that decision for you. I've heard stories from women who've been, um, you know, newly postpartum and just, just passed over, you know, based on the assumption that they wouldn't want to, or they wouldn't be available. Um, and even if the outcome is the same, I think it's so important that you are given not only the option to take, to take the position if you wanted it, but you were told that you were the top choice. And oftentimes that doesn't happen. So I'm glad that that happened for you. Yeah. I, I was blessed with my leadership at the time, him and the guy above him, which was a geo, they were both fantastic. But they both also coincidentally had twins and they had hard birthing experiences. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think that played into it, that experience of having, you know, a critical births. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier um, a couple of resources that were important to you during your experience. Um, what are some other resources that you feel are important to share for others to know about? I say TRICARE when you, when you give birth to a special needs child, you know, that's a qualifying event for changing your plan. So I would just advise this to look into that. What might fit your situation better? If, is it select? Is it prime? Uh, just take a look at that because you did have a qualifying event. Um, reach out to other people. You can reach out in our support groups. You can find local support groups. One thing I didn't mention was I did my local support group 
put me in contact with a family where I got to meet somebody with Down syndrome. I got to meet their child with Down syndrome. And for me, that was amazing. So like connecting with real people that live next to you, like in your town with the same diagnoses, if you can. There's also prime travel with TRICARE. I don't think a lot of people know or understand about prime travel. Um, I can include a link on that as well. Um, so if you are referred to specialists far away and you're on TRICARE Prime, you can get that covered. You can get your whole hotel stay and everything covered. So that is something to think about as well as a resource that the military offers. Uh, you know, your EFMP nurse and your EFMP, um, so the medical side, that's a better way of putting it, the medical side of EFMP and then the family support side of EFMP are two different entities and they provide different resources. So you definitely need to talk to both because one is going to handle your paperwork more and your enrollment in the program. And then the other one is going to help you, should help you with connecting with local resources uh, to help you. And of course we at exceptional families of the military exist because that connective tissue doesn't always happen. And so you can also reach out to our support groups as well, but I'm always eager and I want the military to really step it up here and um, do all the things that kind of the program is said that it's supposed to do. Because if you get a diagnosis, like that should be the first office that you go to, quite frankly is your local EFMP office, and they should be looking up resources for you, um, early childhood resources in your state. So you can look at your state resources and parent training at um, information centers. There's one in each state as well. Great. Okay. Yeah. And we'll include all of that in the podcast notes. So if anybody's listening on the road, um, don't feel like you need to jot all that down. So you can just go to the, wherever you're listening to this podcast, um, and go to the notes for this episode, and we'll put all that information there. Um, before we go, Rebecca, what's one takeaway that you'd like to leave our listeners with after hearing your stories? Sure. Uh, one takeaway I would say is if you're facing an unexpected diagnosis, just let yourself feel all the feelings. Uh, don't beat yourself up or anything like that. Just let yourself go through the process. It's a grief process. Um, let yourself go through it so you can get out on the other end and, um, know that others, are out there that can help you. And uh, I hope I reach somebody or somebody searches this podcast. Maybe they're typing in Down syndrome and they're on their computer crying like I was. <laughs> and they're trying to find somebody to talk about this. Um, you can reach out to me too. My DMs are always open. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for coming on today and sharing all of your experiences with our listeners. It's very much appreciated and um, really grateful for your time today. So thank you. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Military Birth Talk podcast. Join us again next week for another birth story. And we'd love it if you could leave us a review and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. To follow along on social media, you can find us on Instagram at at Military Birth Talk. To learn more about the Military Birth Resource Network and Postpartum Coalition, please visit mbrnpc.org or find us on Facebook. See you next week.